Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Whatever happens, soldier on. That's the message we're coming to today as we continue our study of the book of Philippians, a series called Whatever Happens, and we're coming to chapter 2 and verse 25. This is Robert J. Morgan, and if you have time or the opportunity of grabbing a Bible, you can follow along as we study through this passage verse by verse, and while you're turning there, let me take the opportunity of suggesting that some of my books might make good items on your Christmas gift-giving list. I did something today that I seldom do. I checked to see what people had written under reviews on Amazon for my book, The 50 Final Events in World History. It's always dangerous to look at reviews on Amazon, but I was pleased to find that there are nearly 300 reviews. Most of them are five-star reviews, and many of the people talked about how they better understood the book of Revelation because of this study, the 50 final events in world history, and I was very gratified. Maybe that would be a good gift for you to give someone, or my book, The 50 Bible Verses That Made America, or perhaps my book, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Check out our resources wherever you like to buy books and think of giving them as gifts this year. There's a pastor at the Piney Grove Baptist Church in Maryville, Tennessee, named Chris Edmonds. He became very curious to know more about his father's military service during World War II. Like so many veterans, the older man never told or described very much of what he had gone through in combat. And so it took a lot of detective work, but finally, Pastor Chris got to the story of his father's heroism. The father's name, back when he was uh, serving in his rank in the war, was Sergeant Roddy, R-O-D-D-I-E, Roddy Edmonds. He was from Knoxville. And during the Battle of the Bulge, he was captured and sent to a POW camp. He was the highest-ranking GI at the camp, and so he was in charge of all of the other POWs. There were over a 1,000 American soldiers there, and some of them were Jewish. One day, the Nazi commandant of the camp demanded at gunpoint that Sergeant Edmonds identify the American Jews. The sergeant had all 1,292 soldiers step forward. When the German officer saw the whole group coming forward, he grew angry. He turned to Edmonds and he said that he only wanted the Jews. Edmonds said, we are all Jews here. Well, the commandant threatened to kill him, but Edmonds would not back down. Later, he was given a special citation after all of this came out at the Israeli embassy in Washington and the president of the United States attended and spoke by risking his life, Sergeant Edmonds, who was only 24 years old, had saved some 200 Jewish soldiers. He also did something else. 
He realized in that POW camp that some of the soldiers were discouraged and that they were fading away. Others of them were keeping their morale up. So he divided the people, all of these POWs, the American soldiers, into two groups. He called them the up men and the down men. And he assigned one up man to every down man. And in that way, he kept them all alive. I would like to think that I would be willing to risk my life like that. I'm sure that you do too. By the grace of God, I really think most of us who know Jesus Christ are willing to both live or die, however he may lead us, but it helps us to have models, doesn't it? And a few up people around us, well, it helps a great deal for those of us who tend to be down people. There's a hero in the Bible like this. His name is Epaphroditus. He was a soldier. He was an up man. And his story is given to us in one paragraph. It's the one that we're coming to in Philippians 2, beginning with verse 25. So let's read it, and then I'll sort of take it apart for you. So Philippians 2, beginning with verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my bro brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him back to you, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risks his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Well, the backstory is very important. We've touched on it before, but I'll give it to you again in summary. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke had showed up in this vast Roman city of Philippi and planted a church, and we read about that in Acts chapter 16. In the process, Paul and Silas were arrested and flogged, and in some respects, the church was born from their shed blood. The Philippian church felt very close to Paul, and so they would, from time to time, collect their gifts and send them to him as financial aid. So when they heard that he, he was under financial uh, or under house arrest in Rome, which we read about in the last chapter of Acts, they took up another offering and they sent it by the hand of Epaphroditus. In those days, prisoners received very little, if any, food or provisions from the prison. It had to be provided by family and friends. Well, Paul didn't have any family in Rome, and the Philippians weren't sure how many real close friends he had. And so Epaphroditus, one of the members of the church in Philippi, said something like this. He said, I can detangle my affairs here and travel to Rome and stay with Paul for as long as he needs. I'll take our financial offering to him, and I'll remain there as his helper, doing whatever I can to help him. And so the church commissioned him. And Epaphroditus traveled the 800-plus miles over land and sea, and he tracked down Paul and found him in his rented house in Rome. It must have been a very joyful reunion. I can almost see it in my mind's eye. And Epaphras told Paul all of the news from Philippi, and then Epaphras went to work, 
I suppose washing Paul's clothes and tending to any wounds that he might have had and shopping for his food and preparing his meals. But in the course of it all, Epaphras became deathly sick, probably got some kind of fever or a virus, and he was stretched out in a bed in that rented house, and Paul tried every way possible to save his life. The roles were reversed, and Paul became the caregiver of the man who had been sent to be his caregiver. Well, Epaphroditus recovered, and Paul decided that it was best to send him back home and to send with him this letter to the Philippians. And so, with his strength recovered, Epaphroditus left Rome, and he headed to Philippi with this precious little scroll, the letter to the Philippians, tucked away in his scant baggage. The Apostle Paul certainly didn't want to Uh, the Philippians to think that Epaphroditus had somehow failed in his mission. And so he added this wonderful paragraph to the letter and described Epaphroditus. And notice here in the text, he uses five different terms to describe him. Now, in the New International Version, there are four and a modifier. But if you will look at a more literal translation, as I'll show you, there are five different words here that describe Epaphroditus. The first one is brother. He said in verse 25, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Have you ever noticed how God designed his church to be a gigantic family, the largest family on earth? We are not just an organization or an enterprise, or a mission, or a business. Take Coca-Cola, for example. They have their product, it's said, in every nation of the world. I've read that technically there are two nations that don't allow Coca-Cola, North Korea and Cuba, but even there you can find a Coca-Cola if you have to. And the same secret formula is used all around the world, and yet those 700,000 employees for Coca-Cola are not brothers and sisters, They are simply employees of a vast conglomerate. But when we come to Christ, we are born into his kingdom and adopted into his family, and we call God our Father, and the church is not just like a family, it is a family. Some time ago, I was in Myanmar, and I met Christians from all over the Asia and Pacific realm. The moment I met them, I loved them and I felt a kinship with them that I just can't explain. I recall hearing a story years ago about an American Army officer on an island in the South Pacific. Every Sunday, he left the military base to attend a local church in the nearby village. Someone asked him why he did it. He said, well, on the base, they call me Lieutenant. On the island, they call me G.I. Joe. But in church, they call me Brother. When you know Christ is your Savior— Then you're part of a 2,000-year-old global family, the largest on earth, and we are brothers and sisters. Secondly, Paul called Epaphroditus his co-worker. He said, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother and co-worker. We almost never see the Apostle Paul working alone. Have you noticed that? He was left alone in Athens in Acts 17, and that didn't go so very well. And by the time he got to Corinth, he was really in bad shape. He says that he came into Corinth with much fear and trembling, and he didn't have any money, and he was, well, he was anxious and low. And the Lord sent a Christian couple 
Aquila and Priscilla to take him in, and he became a part of their family until his associates could get there. But Paul needed people around him. From the very beginning, when he set off with Barnabas, he always recruited co-workers, and in his writings, Paul used the word fellow worker or co-worker, the same term in the Greek, to describe 15 different people or groups. Timothy, Apollos, Silas, and he used this term for the entire Corinthian church, Titus, Priscilla, Aquila, a man named Urban, Philemon, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, Justus, and here Epaphroditus. So all of these people Paul called my co-workers. They were not working under Paul. They were working with Paul. I try to remind my intern, Luke Tyler, of that. He'll call me on the phone and he said, I'm doing some work for you today. And I always say, you are doing some work with me. In, the sim- in, a, in a very similar way, don't you notice in the Gospels that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out two by two. The prophet Elijah tried to work alone, but he broke down under the strain, and God gave him Elisha. Moses tried to work alone, but he broke down under the strain, and God gave him 70 co-workers. Even Adam, the perfect man in Eden, could not live in solitude. The Lord said, it's not good for him to be alone, and sent what the older translations called a helpmeet to come and help him meet the challenges. Even Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God, how he wanted his disciples near him, and he needed their fellowship. And on that last night when he met with them in the upper room, it says he wanted to be with them, and he loved them to the very end. Have you ever noticed that one drop of water is a very beautiful thing? Its shape and clarity. I remember when my children were younger, sometimes they would just stand by the faucet and look at one little drop of water forming and dropping, and they were amazed by that. But I never just put one drop of water on a potted plant. I have a potted Japanese maple on my patio, and I may pour a gallon of water into that pot. Well, do you know there are 90,921 drops of water in a gallon? 90,921 drops of water in a gallon. It takes a lot of drops of water to do a lot of good, and it takes all of us working together to keep this world alive and hydrated with the waters of the Holy Spirit. We are co-workers together. We are actually co-workers not only with one another, but co-workers with Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul said about Epaphroditus, he is my brother and he is my co-worker. Thirdly, Paul also said, he is a fellow soldier with me. Now remember that Paul was writing this letter while he was under Roman imprisonment. I think that he may have still been under house arrest, but he also may have been moved into the barracks closer to the imperial courts if his trial before Caesar, before Nero, had come up. But in any event, he had a certain amount of freedom, but he was still chained to a soldier. They didn't have ankle monitors back then, and so the only way they had for making sure that a a prisoner was where he had to be at any particular moment was to be chained to a soldier. So he drew a lot of inspiration from looking at these soldiers, observing their discipline, observing their armor, observing their 
behavior and the way that they lived. I'm sure that he witnessed to them as well. But, you know, in the book of Ephesians, Paul described the soldier's armor and suggested that every piece was symbolic for some quality that we need to have as Christians to help us in our fight against the devil. And he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, telling him to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is very familiar biblical language. I have heard people criticize hymns and sermons and Christian motifs for sometimes being too militaristic. When I was growing up, we sang hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers, Marching as to War, and Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And the Christian life was considered to be a battle. Is that still true? Well, I think to a large measure it is. I've noticed that even some of our favorite contemporary songs talk about the battle belonging to the Lord and other such phrases as fighting and how the Lord will fight for us and we've got to fight the good fight. This is an enduring theme. The Christian life is not just a brotherhood, but it is a battle. Told, uh, Paul told the apostle, uh, told Timothy to fight the battle well. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, he told him to fight the good fight of faith. And among Paul's last words were the words, I have fought the good fight. Jesus said that we are like kings going out to war who ought to consider the cost and make sure that we can win the battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war the way the world does. For the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Paul said we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Put on that full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle. There is a struggle. We're all in a struggle. And it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. So the concept of the struggle and the battle against the forces of evil and the demonic and evil forces around us that are unseen in the air and the world that opposes us and the secular society that we're involved with and even our own lusts and desires. The Bible says that the spirit battles against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit in so many ways, the Christian life is a battle. It is a warfare. Now, I've never been in the military. I've always been conflicted against that. And maybe that's why the stories of the men and women in our armed forces fascinate me. And I draw analogies from many of those stories to the Christian life, and I am inspired by them. I have just finished reading a book called Ship of Miracles. And I have condensed, really, the story uh, in this book, and I have also done further research, and I've hammered it into a Christmas story that I want to share with you later on social media as we get closer to Christmas Eve. But here is the essence of a little bit of the story. 
1950, as you may know, North Korea invaded South Korea, and American forces were sent to repel the attack. Truman was the president, and MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, was the commander in charge of the United Nations forces, which was made up primarily of American forces with some South Koreans and a few others as well. But they uh, began pushing the North Koreans uh, out of South Korea and up into North Korea after the North Koreans had invaded the South. But then everything changed when suddenly and unexpectedly to American intelligence, the Chinese forces began spreading and swarming and flowing like a cataract out of China to support the North Koreans, and the American forces had to retreat. Bill Gilbert, in his book, Ship of Miracles, accounts, uh, tells the account of this, and I want to read you this paragraph. He said, Our troops were making their way along a winding mountainous route toward Hangnan, which was a port city where they could be evacuated from. It was the political and commercial and educational center of the province. They carried what supplies and equipment they could, plus their weapons and temperatures that plunged to 40 degrees below zero at night in the mountains and in snowdrifts that were sometimes 10 feet deep, with howling winds blasting them in the face for over 12 torturous days, all the while under enemy fire. And as he described this incredible retreat, mainly American Marines, but also there were a lot of refugees going along with them, these 12 days from the chosen reservoir down to this port city, trying to get to where they could be evacuated, the suffering and the coldness and the weariness, they had to keep moving because if they stopped, they would be frozen where they were standing. Uh, I've had deacons in my church and friends in my church who were veterans of Korea, and they told me a little something about that coldest winter of the coldest war and how grueling it was for our American servicemen as they were trying to liberate Korea. Well, being a soldier is not for the faint of heart. I was reading this account on a very time recently when I was in very low spirits and feeling sorry for myself. I've, I was thinking of how much loss I've had in the last few years, and the transition from the church that I love had been distressing and hurtful. And I told someone at the grocery store that day that I felt like a man without a country, and I was brooding over that when I came back home, and I began reading more of this story about the Marines and the soldiers in Korea, and I felt ashamed of myself. We've got to soldier up. We've got to keep on going. We've got to fight the good fight. In his hymns, uh, in his great hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Isaac Watts said, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize or sell through bloody seas? And the answer is no. We've got to continue to work. The Bible says, Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so we learn from Epaphroditus that in the Lord's work, we are brothers and sisters. We belong to a brotherhood, and that's so helpful and encouraging to us. We also are co-workers. We are all involved in laboring side by side with the Holy Spirit within and among us, and we are fellow soldiers in a joint war. And all three of these figures are 
real and true. They applied to Epaphroditus, and they apply to us today. Well, there are two other ways that Paul described Epaphroditus, and then he said something very interesting about him. And we'll pick that up next week as we continue our episodes, and I hope that you will read ahead and study along with us in the book of Philippians. Notice how wonderful it is that after the great introduction in Philippians that goes through verse 26, Paul states his purpose, and then he illustrates it in Philippians 2 with Jesus Christ, and then with the example of Timothy, and then with this incredible example of this little-known hero, Epaphroditus. So let's be like him, and join me next week, and we will finish the study. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing is by Jared Brummett. Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler. Music is by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. Look for the transcript of this podcast soon on the blog page at my website, robertjmorgan.com. You'll find both an outline and manuscript form. It may be helpful for you if you are preaching or teaching through Philippians sometime on your own, and there will be many other resources there as well. robertjmorgan.com. Well, thank you for listening, everyone, and may God be with you until we meet again.